Russell has been tying in Joshua with Acts. Joshua being the going into the promised land and Acts going out into the world to reach out and proclaim the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'd gone on a little bit further in the Joshua reading, you'd have read this. Starting at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's several sermons in that passage alone. We see that Joshua, like Moses before him, was told to take off his sandals because he was on holy land. Who told Moses to take off his sandals? It was God. Who do you think the commander of the Lord's army might be? An Old Testament visitation by the Lord Jesus himself. God had the people of Israel prepare themselves for entering to the promised land, reinstating the sacrament of circumcision, the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision, and reinstating the Passover feast to prepare the heart of the people to enter that land flowing with milk and honey. And God sent the commander of his army, the Lord Jesus Christ, to enter that promised land ahead of them. So how do we go out into the world? Do we go out alone? Do we go out boldly proclaiming our own message? Telling people our own world view? Do we go out just hoping against hope that somehow we might achieve something? Well, no, we don't. Because we go out in the promise of Jesus. The promise that every one of us knows. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here it comes. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. It's in the power of Christ that we go out, evidenced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's pure water, believe me.
Yes, it is. Blast. Who here would have thought that the Rolling Stones were theologians? Well, they did have a song, Sympathy for the Devil. But there's another song that the Rolling Stones had, and it's one that I actually chose as the title of the sermon today. I changed it slightly. I say, you don't always get what you want. But the Rolling Stones sang, you can't always get what you want. And this is how the chorus goes in that song. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. They, they, you know, Trinitarian reference there, three repeats. But if you try sometimes, you well might find you get what you need. Isn't that chapter 3 of Acts? What did the man want? Money. What did he get? Well, physical healing and salvation. You see, this man was a symptom of what the Jews had forgotten. We read in Deuteronomy, however, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that your Lord God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. The land was flowing in milk and honey. The land was rich with blessings from God. The land was able to sustain Israel. And because it was able to sustain Israel, there should be no poor. Because the people of Israel, those who had, should give to those who hadn't. And isn't this precisely what the Christians were doing? Remember what we read back in Acts chapter 2? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's a sad indictment on a country, particularly a wealthy country. And we heard that Vietnam is a, a country that doesn't have much health support. But we have wealthy companies, wealthy countries such as the United States that are now winding back health care. As much as saying, if you can't afford a doctor, you deserve to die. Is that how Christians should act? Of course not. But that's how the Jews were acting. We read not just of this crippled man, but we read of many other people who are crippled and cut off from society. They had forgotten the basic instruction from God that God said, I'm giving you a land that is generous. You be generous. So here's this poor man. Crippled from birth never known what it is like to stand upright, let alone walk. Because the community would not support him, friends and relatives would pick him up and carry him 
to the beautiful gate at the temple in Jerusalem for him to beg. Could you imagine how demeaning it was for this 40-year-old man to have to beg? Put yourself in his place. Through no fault of your own, through some form of birth defect, you are condemned to a lifetime of either begging or dying. Because the wealthy in your land won't look after you. And what's more, you notice where this man is outside the door of the temple. You see, he was ritually unclean. So not only didn't the society support him with his physical needs, he was cut off from spiritual worship. He would have been outside those doors there if we applied the same sort of level of of division and cursedness and brutality and hard-heartedness as they did, the religious leaders did in those days. That man would be out there, not in here. We'd shun him. You're unclean. You must therefore be a sinner. Keep away from us. We want nothing to do with you. But one day, One day after Pentecost, we don't know whether it was the day after, a week after, a month after, sometime around Pentecost, but one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. That was one of the two times when also there were sacrifices at the temple. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. What a pitiful picture this paints. An outcast from society, an outcast from worship, having to beg in order to live. This is the man. This is the man who is at the core of chapter 3 in a human sense. Because without this cripple, without this man, nothing in chapter 3 would have happened. So he is the heart of chapter 3. We have to get our picture of this man right in our mind if we're going to make any sense and get anything powerfully out of chapter 3. This man is desperate. What's going to happen to him? Peter and John had witnessed many things in the three years that they followed Jesus around. They heard many things. They saw many things. Luke records many of these things 
in his gospel. He tells us quite specifically that he didn't witness those events, but he checked the history and checked with many people and brought the story together so he was able to proclaim the truth to Theophilus and in turn to us. One of the things that Luke did record was something that happened at the start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had healed a cripple. Bells start ringing. Jesus had healed a cripple and now we've encountered a cripple. Jesus knew what the people were asking when he'd done the healing. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So we come to chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Dr. Luke's second volume. What do we encounter? A cripple. Do we encounter Jesus? Yes. But not Jesus in the flesh. Because Jesus in the flesh has now ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. No, we encounter Jesus in the body of Christ, the church. In this instance, Peter and John. Give me money. Silver and gold have I none. But what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet became strong. Wow. Have you got a picture of that in your mind? Have you got a picture of the destitute man before and the praising man afterwards? You see, you've got to get that grasp on how destitute that man was before you can really appreciate what Peter and John have done here. This man has done to him that day what even we in the 21st century cannot do. If somehow doctors can fix up someone who's got some blockage in the spinal column or or somewhere that has made them cripple, if somehow they can fix that up, what do they do? They do the operation. Does a man leap off the operating table and jump up and down and run around and praise the doctor? No, no, because he then has to go and have remedial care, physiotherapy, 
the nerve tracks from the brain to the limbs have to be reinvigorated. The muscles that have atrophied through no use have to be built up. It takes years, perhaps, of rehabilitation before this man can walk. But not this man here. This man leaps up instantly. All those neurons, all those nerves, all those muscles are healed. No delay. No recuperative period. He's a cripple and then he's healed instantly. Isn't that incredible? You know, Luke, as he writes his gospel, said, I wasn't a witness to these events, but I checked with witnesses. I wonder... Don't take my word for this because it's just my speculation. But I can't help but wonder whether Luke was perhaps one of those people gathered on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, the detail in which he describes things is incredible. It it smacks of being an eyewitness. And I wonder whether Dr. Luke was here this day. There's little details like... Peter reached out his right hand. Now that could have been left out of the passage entirely and it wouldn't have made any difference, but it shows that little bit of compassion. The right hand of Peter wasn't the healing hand. No, the healing was God's. The hand was Peter and he reached out in compassion and love to one who was suffering and gave him encouragement and helped him rise to his feet. I was once given an exercise many years ago. I was actually studying a little bit about computers when I was studying commerce. Now, in those days, computers were largely punch cards, so that gives you a bit of an idea as to how long ago it was, okay? But I was told, bearing in mind that everything that a computer does, it has to be told to do, write out a list of the things you would have to program into a computer to equate getting up from your seat and walking across the room. I did it, and I filled about three full-scap pages. When you start thinking about it, the movement of the muscles, the electrons flowing through the nerves, all these, the things that are necessary to get you out of a seat and across the room, if you had to program yourself to do it, is enormous. Yet God, through Jesus, through the apostles, Peter and John, did it instantly. I can't click my fingers very well. He did it instantly. Everything was right. What do you do when opportunity knocks at the door? Hide under the bed and hope it goes away? Or do you grab hold of the handle, throw open the door and grasp that opportunity? That's what Peter did here. Oh, great! I've performed a miracle. 
I can go home now and rest because I've done a good thing. I've been a good boy scout. No, no, because there's a crowd gathered, he thinks, oh, there's one more thing I can do. I can do what I remember Jesus saying. After Jesus performed a miracle, he said, no, I'm not here to perform miracles. I'm here to preach. And so Peter preaches. Peter preaches about what has just happened. In many respects, it's a similar sermon to the sermon of chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Because what Peter does here is the thing that we probably wouldn't do. We'd be self-satisfied if we managed to be the conduit for a miracle. Boy, I did well, didn't I? This man can walk because I was there and I invoked the name and the power of the Lord Jesus and he walked. That's great. I really feel good. No. No. What does Peter say? What do you think? It's us? Do you think it's because of our godliness that this happened? No. No, this happened because of Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Jesus of Nazareth? He was a good man accredited by God with signs and miracles. And the leaders handed him over to Pilate. And even though Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus, you cried out, give us the murder of Barabbas and crucify him. That's what you did. And it is this man whose power is working through us. When we called on his name, we received his power. It is he who did the curing. It's he who enables this man that you see right here. Look, there he is. You crucified the Lord of life. But God raised him from the dead. And it is in the power of this Jesus that this miracle has occurred. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. You see, Peter doesn't let a chance go by. Peter, when opportunity knocks, grabs hold of that opportunity and rings it to the fullest extent. He highlights the guilt of the people gathered there today. None of this merely mouth, look, you know, uh, you've you, you sort of made a bit of a goof up there. He said, no, you crucified the Lord of life. You did it in ignorance, but that ignorance doesn't let you off the hook. You are guilty of murdering God in the flesh. What was the cry of the people on the day of Pentecost? Brothers, what shall we do? Well, it's quite simple, isn't it? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he said on the day of Pentecost. 
What does he say on this day, sometime after? Repent then and turn to God. Do that U-turn that Russell was talking about last week. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshment may come from God. You see, this is a gift of God. Back in those days, they would write on parchment, but the ink that they used didn't have any acid in it. The ink that we use today has acid. So not only does it make a mark, but it also burns in a little bit into the paper. So it doesn't erase easily. But all you need to do, I think, in those days was to get a cloth, wet it, and wipe it. And the writing disappeared. I'm really going to give my age away now. I used to use a slate at school. Who knows what a slate is? Oh, there's a few brave people. We used to wipe the slate clean when we finished writing on it. And that's what God does if we repent and commit our lives to Jesus. This Jesus, as, Paul point, as Peter points out, is the Jesus that even Moses talked about. The Jesus that all the prophets from Samuel onwards spoke about. This Jesus is the Son of God, the God of our forefathers, the God of the patriarchs. This Jesus came to this world and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead and his power is still abroad in this world today. A few questions for you to think about. As you go out from here and go through the next week. Do we believe that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in the pages of Scripture, is true? Do you believe what we heard read and what I've just been talking about? actually happened. Do we believe in what the gospel says that there is only one way to heaven, there is only one way to God and that is the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we fit in with the world view that there are many pathways that lead to God and each one is as valid as the other? Are we game enough to be exclusivists just as Christ was an exclusivist? You see, we might be called bigots if we say that the gospel and Christ is the only way to God, but all we're doing is saying what Jesus said before. I'm not going to call Jesus a bigot, but I am going to repeat what he said. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do we believe the gospel? If so, why aren't we proclaiming it? Do we acknowledge that everything that is good and beautiful in this world comes from God? 
Or do we, like many in the world, believe it happened by accident that somehow the right chemicals were in the right place at the right time to be zapped by the right bolt of lightning that was exactly the right voltage, but not just once, billions of times across the face of the earth? Which is the leap of faith, I want to ask you? Belief in God as creator or belief in evolution, as they would have us believe? Do we believe that everything stems from God? This man's healing came from God through faith, which in itself was a gift of God. It all began with God. Or are we like the other religions of the world where it all begins with us? If we believe that all that is good, all that is pure and holy comes from God and not from us, then why aren't we proclaiming it? Are we brave enough to hold the view that the Bible is the revealed, inspired word of God? Or are we afraid of being called bigots and non-inclusive? That we don't fall into step with the worldview that the Bible is man reaching out to God? See, that's the two ways of looking at the Bible. Man reaching out to God or God reaching out to man. Which do we believe it is? If we believe it is man reaching out to God, then yeah, talk about it by all means, but talk about other philosophies as well. But if we believe it is God reaching out to man, why aren't we proclaiming it? What response did Peter expect from the people that day? Repent. Do the U-turn. You know, it's sometimes estimated that somewhere between 75 and 80% of Christians are merely professing Christians and not practicing Christians. 75 to 80%, in other words, of people who would call themselves Christians on a census form are not really saved. That means that there is somewhere around one billion people in this world right now who are friendly to the church, who are open to the church, but who aren't saved by Christ. Why aren't we preaching to them? Let alone Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, Shintos, pagans, agnostics, who are so confused they don't know whether they believe or not, or atheists who shut their mind to God. You know, even some atheists give us opportunity. I was reading somewhere that Sir Kingsley Amos, who was a, Amis, who was a famous atheist and father of the author um, Martin Amos, died. And Martin Amos spoke at his father's funeral and he recounted an incident where a man came up to Sir Kingsley Amos and said, do you really not believe in God? And Kingsley Amos said, not only do I not believe in him, but I hate him. You see, even atheists are so stupid that they don't recognise that they can't hate someone that doesn't exist. So even with atheists, there's a hope, isn't there? Why aren't we preaching to them? Why aren't we grasping the opportunity to reach out as Peter did that day?
and point away from himself and point to our glorious Heavenly Father. Point to our magnificent Saviour Jesus and say all the power comes from there. And that is power enough to save you. The power that enabled this man to walk can save you from an eternity in hell and prepare you for an eternity in heaven. Don't always get what you want. If you try hard enough, you'll get what you need. That applies not just to us, but to the world at large. Why aren't we proclaiming?